a white man God is not a man sitting on a cloud And God cannot be bought God will not be boxed in God will not be owned by religion But God is love God is love Hey, uh, did that song make you nervous? Just, just kind of a, a little bit? Yeah, kind of a little bit, huh? Well, it was written by a guy named Michael Gungor, and he's a white man. He's an American. He's probably a Republican, and he's a preacher just like Pat Robertson. And uh, Michael's a friend of mine. In fact, he's a friend of some of yours because he used to go to Lookout Mountain Community Church, and now he's the pastor of Bloom Church, which meets at uh, the Grant Street building where we met before we began meeting here, and Michael is a musician, a pretty well-known musician, and he called me a few weeks ago, and he said, Peter, could we just have lunch? And so we set up lunch and sat down, and Michael wanted to know all about the troubles that I'd been through in the last year and a half, and so I shared with him, and then he said, I know. 
He said, you wouldn't believe the hate mail that I have received since I wrote this last song, the one that Justin just played. Hate mail, like he'd never, ever had before. The offensive line, God is love and he loves everyone, and then he just described everyone. Terrorists, even old Pat Robertson. Let's pray. Lord God, we confess to you that we don't like being lumped in a group with terrorists. Lord God, we know that you save us solely by grace, and yet we don't like being lumped in a group with them. And God, we confess to you that you are confusing. We know that you hate violence and you hate terror, and yet you love terrorists. You love us. And so, Father in heaven, would you help us understand your heart? Help us to see him. In his name we pray. Amen. Does everybody have their WJD bracelets on? Do you know what that is, everybody? What would Jesus do? They're not magical. They're just a reminder to be a better person, to live a better life. It's true. Because I was wearing my bracelet recently and I was in the movie theater. This guy's cell phone went off. Don't you just hate that? Yeah. And I'm like, ooh. And then he picked it up. Hey, how's it going? I'm in a movie. And I'm like, hey, get off the phone. And he's like, mind your own business. And I almost went crazy. But then I looked at my bracelet. <laughs> what would Jesus do? So I lit him in fire and sent him to hell. Yeah. I did. I'll be honest, I felt a lot better afterwards. Those things work. Well, did that make you a little nervous? <laughs> just, just kind of a, a little? I mean, do you laugh? Do you cry? Is it the truth? Is that what Jesus would do, WWJD? You know, Scripture says the Father has given all judgment to the Son, and it's clear there is a eternal fire and a place we call hell. What is hell? You know, most uh, evangelical American Christians seem to believe that hell is a place where either A, God himself actually tortures a group of people forever without end, or B, God allows a group of people to be tortured forever without end. Forever without end. So it never ends. It has no goal. And most believe God either created people for that fate or at least knew that they'd choose that fate as he chose to create them. Unending, conscious, torture, sustained, maintained by God. God is good, God is good, and he loves everyone. It's confusing. 
couple of years ago, I went to Auschwitz. And then I went to Twal Slang Prison and the killing fields of Cambodia. I have friends that have been tortured in places like that. Friends in Romania, China. I have friends in this room that have been tortured worse than that. By people. By demons. And it's become quite clear to me that Satan and his demons, they really like that. Torment, torture. But then it's forced me to ask a question. Jesus, um, do you like that? Father, is this your heart? Or Satan's heart? Or lack thereof? Father, would you want this forever and ever and ever without end? Would that quote unquote please you? Hope it doesn't bother you that I talk like this. For you see, I actually believe the church in America is due for a reformation. And I think maybe the sanctuary is called to be a part of it. And you see, I am convinced that nothing is more important than the heart of God and what we believe about it. You know, if we believe it's really not all that different from the heart of Satan, (laughs) that might be a problem. For what you believe about the heart of your Father in heaven affects every move you make and every breath you take. A few weeks ago, a friend here in church sent me an article from CNN. In April, the Pew Research Center conducted a survey asking folks if the torture of suspected terrorists is often or sometimes justified. Now, let me say, I don't want to argue about the secular politics of torture, because in a very real sense, all politics is torture. (laughs) I mean that seriously. Democrat or Republican, it's torture. I looked up the word torture in the dictionary. It said this, infliction of severe pain. (laughs) So war is torture. Secular governments literally run on the threat of torture. But the church is not a secular government. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have the power to destroy strongholds, strongholds even like the gates of hell, according to Jesus. Well, anyway, they conducted this survey and concluded the following, and I quote, White evangelical, now evangelical, remember, euangelia means good news. White evangelical Protestants were the religious group most likely to say torture is often or sometimes justified. People unaffiliated with any religious organization were least likely to back it. Now you've got to admit, that's... That's a little strange. 
when you consider that white evangelical Protestants, of which I am one, are the group that say they take the following words quite literally. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other. You have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, torture you. Does God love his enemies? Or just us? Love your enemies so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You know, we must take Scripture literally, I believe, according to its literal, the author's literal intent. So there is an eternal fire, and there is an outer darkness, and there is a valley of Gehenna, and the Bible is absolutely packed with violence. I mean, a cross is maximum violence, but, but perhaps we don't understand the meaning, and we've missed our Father's heart. What you believe about the heart of the Father affects every move you make, every breath you take. Whether or not your eyes dilate or constrict when you see an enemy or a neighbor. Whether or not you are an open door or a solid wall. Whether or not this church is a lifeboat or a tomb. One of Philip Yancey's friends who works with folks in the inner city told them the following story. Prostitute came to me in wretched straits, homeless, sick, unable to buy food for her two-year-old daughter. Through sobs and tears, she told me that she had been renting her daughter, two years old, to men interested in kinky sex. She made more renting out her daughter for an hour than she could earn on her own in a night She had to do it, she said, to support her drug habit. I could hardly bear hearing her story, and I had no idea what to say to this woman. At last, I asked if she had ever thought of going to a church for help. I will never forget the look of pure, naive shock that crossed her face. Church, she cried. Why would I ever go there? I was already feeling terrible about myself. They just make me feel worse. Lifeboat? Why would I want a lifeboat? I'm already drowning. Last time, we preached that the church is a lifeboat. But a lifeboat won't work if we won't sail it into the sea where people are drowning. And a lifeboat won't work if no one believes that that's what it is. Life for those that are drowning in the sea. Well, you're on the boat. How do you look at those drowning in the sea? Do your pupils dilate like an open door to your heart and God's heart? Or do they constrict? A door slammed shut in judgment. Well, this sermon is a continuation of last week's sermon, or two weeks ago, last time we preached. So I'm assuming 
that you heard it, and if you didn't hear it, it's online, but it's about a boat. It's about the Ark of the Covenant, the new creation, the community of life floating on a sea of death and violence. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Your sin grieves God like nails hammered through his heart and into wood. Verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. We swim in it. All flesh is laced with it. In fact, we call it survival of the fittest. We think life itself is dependent on the fear of death, violence. Our economies, our economies of violence, competition. Our education is violence, grading on a curve, my A, dependent on somebody else's failure. Even our lack of violence is based on violence. Threats of greater violence. You know, that's how worldly governments operate. Fear of violence. They control violence with violence. We look down on primitive tribal societies for that, but Auschwitz, the Keeling Fields, they they show us that our civility is just a thin layer of fear on an ocean of violence. Even our lack of violence is based on violence. It's how societies form. (laughs) Do you know that? Uh, This is a map of the Heritage High School lunchroom, 1974. You can ask John about this later to see if it's true. Don't know if I have the exact details down, but I was an insecure freshman in a highly competitive environment. Lunchroom, 1974. In order to survive, I entered into unwritten covenants, alliances that form societies of nonviolence based on violence. What I mean is that I only ate with the soccer players They were like a lifeboat in that sea of violence. But I did not eat with the football players or the band geeks, cowboys, stoners, the hippie earth people, or even the occasional unprotected loner. I ate with my society. See, we defined ourselves as in by judging others out. We built walls, what St. Paul called dividing walls of hostility. We united our group by dividing with others, victims of our common hatred. Sociologists like Rene Girard argue that this is how all human societies form. They call it scapegoating. Girard also argues that this is how all religions form. 
except one. Well, in 1974, I also had a map uh, kind of like, like this. Now, now, see, you'll see the city of Denver there, kind of kind of like, like this. This is, this is how I saw reality. Let's see if you can see that, my high-tech um, overhead projector system. Well, you can't see it real well, so let me tell you about it. Um, this is where I lived. So these people were normal. <laughs> normal white people. That was my lifeboat. These people were poor white people, so we referred to them as, you know, like white trash. These people were richer white people, so they were rich snobs over here. These people were cowboys and horse girls over here in Golden and Arvada. Grizzly Adams cabin people up here. Uh, Mexicans right along here. Prostitutes and drug addicts over here. Blacks over here near Five Points. Up here, these were alien life forms, people <laughs> from some other planet. But you see, that's how I viewed uh, my world. We defined our unity by building walls of disunity. Now, you realize there's a map like this for the world, isn't there? I mean, I could go on and on like this. You know, there was a map like this for Jesus' world. In 30 AD, it's really fascinating when you begin to study it, for in, in many ways, Jesus fit best with a group of very religious Jewish lay people called Pharisees. And yet wherever there was a wall, Jesus always seemed to find a way to show up on the other side. I mean, he ate with tax collectors and sinners. He befriended thieves and prostitutes. He complimented the faith of a Roman centurion, the occupying forces, as, as more faithful than any he had met in Israel. And he even uh, accomplished or befriended this Syrophoenician woman who uh, was a pagan, called her a lost sheep of the house of Israel. Wherever someone was last or least or on the other side of some wall, Jesus seemed to show up there with them. I mean, he was like violently nonviolent. Of course, the greatest wall in Jesus' day was the wall in the temple. The great curtain separating the Ark of the Covenant from all flesh, all flesh drowning in a sea of violence. You know, when Jesus died, that curtain ripped from the top to the bottom. Maybe the heart of our Heavenly Father is violently nonviolent. Next verse. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, all flesh. Now, that would include Noah's flesh, right? And the flesh of the seven folks that were with him. Perhaps it includes your flesh. 
1 Peter 3.21. Peter tells us that baptism corresponds to this, the flood and the ark. Paul tells us God makes an end of our flesh through the death of Christ on the cross. Well, God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. I hope you see. God is not okay with our sin. (laughs) That is our flesh. And he will end it. Revelation 11, 18. Your wrath came, the time for destroying the destroyers of the earth. He will destroy destruction. How do you destroy destruction? How do you violate violence? How do you make void the void? How do you bring to nothing nothingness itself? How do you hate hatred without creating more hatred? How will God bring an end to violence? By creating more violence? I mean, if hell is a place where people are tortured forever without end, and that's the final destination of these ancient people, well, then God didn't end violence, did he? He increased it infinitely and forever without end. But God wants to end violence, not preserve it. God hates violence. But what does it mean to be violent toward violence, to be violently nonviolent? English Bibles refer to God's violence toward violence as vengeance. We can also translate that Hebrew word as punishment. In the New Testament, the Greek word translated vengeance literally means bring out the right. Well, God says, vengeance is mine. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. But if you study history, you know that along about the 4th, 5th, 6th century A.D., The church also began to say, well, you know, um, but vengeance also belongs to us, mine. The church allied itself with Rome and the systems of this world, and when she did, those people, that society of suffering servants that was conquering the world with sacrificial love suddenly became militaristic, and she lost her power. She also changed her theology of hell. 553 A.D., the fifth general council under the pressure of the Roman emperor Justinian. You see, I, I think she, we, wanted the power of vengeance. And the Lord says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. But Noah, what I want you to do is build an ark. You know, Noah's ark is like the ark of the covenant behind that wall in the temple in Jerusalem. 
And, you know, Noah's Ark had walls, but not just normal dividing walls, for those walls separate a world flooded with violence from a kingdom of nonviolence inside where the wolf lies down with the lamb. I mean, I just wonder if the wall looks different from the inside looking out than from the outside looking in. Well, in the wall, in its side, God commanded Noah to build a door. Chapter 7, verse 11. Then in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the seventh day of the month, on that day, all the foundations of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened as creation in reverse. And rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth and Noah's wife and their wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to his kind and all the livestock according to their kinds and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life and those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God has commanded him and the Lord shut him in. The Lord shut the door on the side of the ark. Just like the Lord shut the wound on the side of Adam. This is the second place that we've countered this verb in Genesis. Just like the Lord shut the wound in the side of Adam. Adam is a picture of Christ who is our Ark of the Covenant. You know, we come from him, his bleeding side, and we go back in him where God seals us. Well, anyway, Noah built the ark, but God shut the door, shuts Noah in, the flood out, God shuts the door, only God shuts the door. I think that's his way of saying, Noah, you help build the ark, but Noah, vengeance is mine. For 20 years now, I've been saying that to my kids. Kids? Love each other. Build each other up. But kids, vengeance is mine. Punishment belongs to me. Spankings belong to me, not you. And you know, I could spank harder than any of them could ever spank. But that's not why spankings belong to me. And it's not because I love them less than they love each other. Actually, it's because I love them more and I love them better. That's why spankings belong to me. You know, God is love. And so vengeance is an act of love, a form of love. Parents, if you ever punish your kids and your heart is not burning with love for them, you need to stop. Just stop. And yet if you're a father and you know Jesus, I imagine you've had this experience. The experience of punishing your child and even in the midst of anger and frustration, your love burns more intensely than it ever has before such that even as you inflict pain on them, there is a greater pain inflicted upon your own heart because you bear every grief, every sorrow, every chastisement you inflict. And surely he has borne our griefs. And surely he has carried our iniquities. And with the chastisement that was ours, 
Having been laid on him, we are made whole. And who is he? He is the heart of God. Jesus, from the bosom of the Father. Well, anyway, I say to my kids, look, kids, I want you to love each other in just about every possible way except one. You will not love each other with vengeance. It's a form of my love, too hot and too good for you to handle. It's a form of my love that you are not wise enough to mete out, and you will too easily twist into evil. Vengeance, violence upon your violence is mine, is holy. Well, God's vengeance is holy. So we cannot fully comprehend it. Yet we can believe what has been revealed. Sometimes God's vengeance looks like absence or perceived absence, like Hades. Sometimes God's vengeance looks like presence, the eternal consuming fire falling upon Gehenna. Sometimes absence, sometimes presence, but always it is an act of love, for God is love. Jesus stood up and quoted Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the Lord's grace, and the day of vengeance of our God. Like grace and vengeance are the same event. God's vengeance is holy. Listen to Romans 12. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. Guess that's God's vengeance. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. Now listen closely. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let me read it again. Overcome evil with good. Well, how does God overcome evil? With more evil? Or does he overcome evil with good? And who is good? And what is good? And where is the good revealed? George MacDonald wrote this. Only good where evil was is evil dead. Scripture tells us the world is flooded with violence. But one day it will be flooded with fire. 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 6. One day it will be filled with God's glory, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3. More specifically, Ephesians 4.10, it will be filled with Jesus. Well, Noah's ark touched down on a holy mountain, as you remember. Chapter 8, verse 20, we read this. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. He made a sacrifice on the mountain. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again 
curse the ground. Like the sacrifice, the sacrifice undoes the curse. I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil, still evil, evil from his youth. Then God says, be fruitful and multiply, kind of like start over, be born again. Then God places a rainbow in the sky. It's the sign of the covenant. I wish we had more time to talk about all of that stuff, but did you notice that the flood didn't work? Did you? I mean, it didn't work like it was supposed to. I mean, it didn't destroy all flesh. That's obvious. And it didn't make all things new. That's also obvious. I mean, God just said it in the last verse. He said, the intention of man's heart is only evil from his youth. Or evil from his youth, but but it didn't work. And yet, it did work. For it revealed God's heart. It revealed an ark of a covenant. It revealed gospel good news. It revealed God's mercy. Mercy is revealed in the midst of judgment. Saviors are revealed where people need saving. The whole thing is a story about something else. For one day the earth will be flooded with fire, consuming fire, eternal fire. But God has prepared an ark and he had us pound the nails. The body of Christ is the ark of the covenant. A wound in his side forms the door. When Jesus' flesh was ripped, the wall, the curtain was ripped, making a door into the holy of holies, the ark of the covenant. The ark grows, you know that. It's a magical growing ark. The ark grows into a city, the new Jerusalem coming down. In the city, on the mountain, the wolf lies down with the lamb. It's the new creation. Outside is everyone who loves and practices falsehood, violence. But get this. The gates of the city are always open. Jesus said, I am the door. And with his death on the cross, he opened the door that is himself, his body broken and his blood shed. Do you realize that the cross was the very pinnacle of violence, the very pinnacle of Roman torture technology in that day. You see, Jesus was violently nonviolent, which is God's judgment on this world. Jesus is the lamb that could be taken from the sheep or the goats, the lamb slain for the sins of the world. He made himself the scapegoat saying, give me your violence. If someone must be last, I will be last. And whatever you do unto the last, you do unto me. That's judgment. He descended into the lowest parts of the earth. And he tore down every dividing wall by standing on the other side. Ephesians 2.14. He himself has broken down in his flesh 
the dividing wall of hostility, that he might create in himself one new man and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing, get this, killing the killing, killing the hostility, violating the violence, destroying destruction, destroying those walls. You see, the sanctuary is called to be a church without walls. (laughs) What walls? These walls. We live in a temperate zone. We need physical walls. But there are other walls. According to Paul, you know, there used to be a ministry of condemnation, wall building. Used to be a ministry of condemnation, but Christ has entrusted to us the ministry of reconciliation, for God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. We have the ministry of the open door that no man can shut. Behold, I set before you an open door that no man can shut. See, now we are Christ's body. And the wounds that we choose to bear in love form his door. Somewhere along the line, the church forgot that we no longer have the ministry of condemnation. We have the ministry of reconciliation. We're called to be the lifeboat, not the sea. So we don't commit violence, but absorb violence. We don't inflict torture, we sign up for torture. We don't crucify, we are the fellowship of the crucified. That's the crusade that we're on. The ark is Christ, and we are his body, and the wounds we bear in love form the door to the new creation for others. You are a lifeboat. Remember this um, from last time. If you weren't here last time, we... We talked about this quite a bit. We talked about the Titanic. (laughs) We talked about how when the Titanic sank, lifeboats would not come for the people that were drowning. They would not come for fear of their own lives. They rode outside of the area where the people were drowning. And because those that were drowning were second and third class, they were steerage from the other side of dividing walls of hostility. The lifeboats wouldn't come. So Jack Dawson made himself a lifeboat. Despised and rejected from steerage, he gave himself for rose from first class. Well, you see, Jesus is our lifeboat. And when the lifeboats wouldn't come, he died and he descended even into the abyss to make us his body and his bride. And now we are the lifeboat. And God calls us to sail our lifeboats into troubled seas that we would not be a wall of hostility, but a door of salvation. Sail our lifeboats into the middle of the sea, or kind of, maybe, sort of, at least, uh, like this, you know, where's Denver here? Here it is, kind of like, kind of like that into the middle of the sea where all the lifeboats meet and form an ark, a new community of life.
You're the ark. And God's grace in you forms the door. Grace shows up in giving and forgiving, in deeds of love, and perhaps most of all, in your eyes. I mean, it's not something that you can fake. It's something that you have to believe. And so do you look and see a homeless man? Or do you look and see the home of the living God? If you see the former, your eyes will constrict. If you see the latter, your eyes will dilate, making an open door. Do you look and see a prostitute who must be condemned? Or the bride of Christ? It's the difference between a wall and a door. Do you look and see someone cursed by God, even potentially cursed by God, hated by heaven and condemned to unending torment? Or do you look and see someone for whom our Lord Jesus, the Christ, the great bridegroom, gave absolutely everything? Paul wrote this. The love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ controls us. Why? Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. People say to me, Peter, why don't you drop it? Why didn't you drop it? Why do you keep talking about it? Because I want you to conclude this, that one has died for all, that we would be controlled, compelled, and restrained by the love of Christ. Well, it appears that most of the early church believed what I'm about to read to you. However, most modern evangelicals try to explain it away. I hope you just believe it. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Jesus is the door. He's the ark of the eternal covenant, the bridegroom who descended even into the depths of the sea. Even death is no longer a wall to him. He is, he is the end. 
and with his blood, the wrath of God is finished. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I'll never let go. I promise. there was a man named Jack Dawson and that he saved me in every way that a person can be saved. gospel cannot be worse than that. It can only be better. And so on the night that he was uh, delivered up, our bridegroom took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body. You see, he made a door. Take and eat. And in the same manner, he took the cup, saying, this is the new covenant, the eternal covenant. Some uh, books just call it the covenant, gospels. This is the covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins, his life. And now this is very important. Because all of us get confused about the heart of God, don't you? 
either philosophically, theologically, existentially, this week you got confused about the heart of God. If you're asking questions about the heart of God, what is the heart of God? This is the heart of God. Open forever to you. In Jesus' name, believe the gospel and be saved. Amen. Dark cups are wine. Light cups are juice. They're both the life of Jesus. By coming to this table, you're saying, I surrender myself to you, Lord Jesus. I want on board your boat. Amen. WWJD. What would Jesus do? Well, I know what he did do. He set himself on fire and he descended into the lowest parts of the earth and broke down the gates of hell from the inside out and the whole earth is filled with his glory. And WSCD What should the church do? (laughs) Well, actually, Jesus set the church on fire too. Remember, it happened on Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. We'll talk about it next week because it's the anti-babble. He set the church on fire, and then he sent the church sailing, saying, the gates of hell shall not prevail against my church. There's no place we should be afraid to go with the love of Jesus. In his name, believe the gospel and go sailing. Amen.